Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week on Become an Educate, I am joined by my talented colleague, Fiona Ledbeer. Fiona and I organised the Scott Ed Conference last year and have done a number of things since and are currently planning Scott Ed 2021, or should I say Scott Ed 2? So please keep a lookout for that and if you want to attend, it will be held on Saturday the 18th of September 2021 and we have some smashing guest speakers lined up for you. So Fiona joins me today on Becoming Educated because today we're talking to an art specialist, Fiona's favourite subject. Our guest this week is Tamsin Bellaby. Tamsin is a Lincolnshire-based secondary teacher of art, photography and recently business studies. Tamsin is obsessed with the power of transformative culture within schools. And until January, she was the head of Year 11 and led on inclusion. Tamsin has recently started at a new school where she leads Pupil Premium and drives Key Stage 4 and Key Stage 5 achievement. And we ask Tamsin all about a knowledge-rich art curriculum. We ask Tamsin about her experience in developing a knowledge-rich art curriculum and how she first became interested in this. We ask her to explain what is meant by a knowledge-rich curriculum and how that looks like in art and design when compared to a, what we may call a typical art curriculum. We ask Tamsin to let us into our classroom to, and she shares how that looks and feels for the young people and how they are engaging in learning. We ask Tamsin how she supports and scaffold tasks so that all learners can achieve in art and design. And we ask what are the benefits for young people of teaching art and design or indeed any other practical subject in this knowledge-rich way. And finally, we close by asking Tamsin what her advice would be to other art educators, educators who are perhaps keen to develop this approach within a practical subject such as art and design. So art teachers or teachers of any subject I'm sure you'll get a lot out of this, so let's dive right in and listen to Tamsin Bellaby. Okay, so today on the Becoming Educated podcast... So today on the Becoming Educated podcast, I'm being joined by my Scott Ed companion, uh, Fiona Ledbeater. She's going to co-host with us. So hi, Fiona. How are you today? Hi, Darren. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to, to be part of Becoming Educated. No, thank you so, so much. And today... Um, as per Fiona's request, we're going to interview Tamsin Bellaby. So Tamsin, thank you so much for coming on Becoming Educated. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, both of you. Oh, it's a, it's a real pleasure. So just to, to get in, before we get into it, and he's us in, can you share a little bit about you and your career in education to date, please? 
Of course. Um, so I'm, I was quite late to the teaching party. I didn't start teaching until I was in my early 30s. Um, and I'd certainly never wanted to be a teacher. I mean, I loved school, but it was just never on my menu. I, I, it was never on my radar. Um, and I, I went to university and I studied fashion design and, I, and, and business. Um, and when I left uni, I ended up starting my own business uh, and I designed uh, high end uh, sort of lingerie and loungewear. And, and it was I loved my job and, and I, I did quite well. Um, and then I sold my business and I did lots and lots of other jobs and none of them sort of meant anything to me. Um, and I was sort of trundling along at 30, not really knowing what I was doing with my career. And a, a relative said to me, you should become a teacher, go, go and be a teacher. Um, and it just sort of happened from there. Um, so until quite recently, I've changed jobs recently, but until quite recently, I worked at a school that had very, uh, has very high social disadvantage. Um, and we had all of those sort of typical behavior challenges that comes with that sort of demographic. Um, and this is certainly the area that I find most rewarding in education, working in those kinds of schools that where you can really make a big impact. Um, so when I was an NQT, I joined a, a working party. I was asked to join a working party and we sort of redesigned the whole culture of the school um, and, and sort of built reward systems that, that really deliberately structured a, a culture that we wanted. And it was incredibly successful and I loved it. I absolutely sort of reveled in learning so much so quickly. Um, so in my sort of RQT year, I became a head of house um, and then I became head of year 11. Uh, head of year 11 during sort of COVID was quite challenging. Um, and I found that through my sort of teaching career, I'd, I'd, I've got two children myself and they're both sort of secondary age now. And I found that being a parent and then becoming a teacher later in life, I'd already got my sort of values. I was quite confident about what I sort of stood for. Um, and I found that transferred to the classroom and, the, and sort of school life quite naturally. Um, and I've always had really high expectations of behavior and been very focused on character development and sort of modeling those social skills quite explicitly. And I think we'll probably start to talk about how that links in with my sort of beliefs around our education uh, probably a bit later on. Well, certainly, thank you. Such a, a lovely, uh, lovely to hear that you how you kind of went from business and then came into education and and obviously what you mentioned there, I like what you mentioned there about being a parent and coming into teaching late and how that aligned your values. As I think a lot of people will resonate with what you, what you said there. So we're now going to dive into the to the questions that we've got planned for you. And uh, to kick us off on that, Fiona, can you kick us off with a question? Yeah, of course. So uh, we're here today to talk about your experience, Tamsin, of developing a knowledge-rich curriculum. So how did you first become interested in this? Um, well, I can I can credit one person, um, Mark Wilkinson. He was my NQT lead uh, when I started at my school, and he was absolutely fundamental like he was instrumental in introducing me to the research and the thinking about knowledge rich and um, and direct instruction so Mark led he was the senior leader responsible for teaching and learning um, where I worked and he drove CPD in a in a manner where we were so focused about talking about knowledge questioning modeling and feedback and 
everything he said just sort of made sense to me. It just sort of clicked. Um, and I was certainly looking for something different from what I'd received in my training. So when I was um, training to be an art teacher, um, some of the feedback I used to get was sort of, you know, I was talking too much um, and that I didn't allow the students to sort of discover how to create the art. Um, and, and I sort of had this innate belief that that I should tell them, I should sort of help them and guide them. And I was being sort of guide, being told really that, that I shouldn't just give that information away, that they needed to sort of work for it and discover it for themselves. And it just didn't quite sit with me. But as a trainee, I didn't really have the language or the knowledge to understand that I sort of knew it was wrong, but I couldn't articulate why. So when I got to my NQT school and Mark Wilkinson was leading teaching and learning and talking about this knowledge rich and direct instruction, he it just made sense to me. And he gave me the language and the research to read and these big ideas about knowledge rich um, and that and it just clicked. It just clicked for me um, and I've never looked back literally from my, my, my NQT year. Um, so I think fundamental things that I read uh, right, right set very early on was Tiger Teachers by Michaela. Um, and that really sort of that got me thinking about the belief that I had about behaviour and how important behaviour was for, for excellent learning environments. Um, I think I read Daisy Christodoulou's Myths of Teaching as well. Is it Seven Myths? I remember that sort of really rang true to me as well. Um, I joined Twitter and sort of became more active on Twitter. And then I was so lucky I got to go to Bedford Free School, um, which was just, it was amazing, absolutely amazing. Their art department there is just phenomenal. Um, and I went to Great Yarmouth and I got to visit some other schools as well during my sort of early, early sort of formative years as a teacher and they weren't delivering knowledge rich and at this point that was very powerful too seeing how other people were delivering uh, without knowledge rich and without direct instruction and and that really sort of cemented my views that knowledge rich was the way to go and that you know at that time direct instruction that's what this is what we need to be using definitely it's, it's, it would have been great to contrast that a school like the bedford free school or the great Yarmouth of charter and compare that to Another school that perhaps wasn't going down a, a Norwich approach, mm -hmm. as you said, more discovery approach and letting the what do you say letting the children discover the art for themselves. So it was interesting there. So for those that maybe don't know much about knowledge rich, can you tell us what a knowledge rich art knowledge rich art and design curriculum looks like and, and perhaps how this differs from what we commonly consider to be a, a typical art curriculum? Yeah, of course. So a knowledge-rich art curriculum to me, um, and, and you know, I recognise other people have completely different interpretations, but for me, um, it's very much a, it's based on a sort of spiral model where your curriculum is based on these core, this core knowledge that's often founded on these visual elements that art teachers talk about so frequently. So sort of tone, form, line, mark making. And this spiral curriculum allows you to sort of revisit this um this knowledge and to build upon it and it's activating that prior knowledge each year and just building on it and building on it and it growing and growing so to give a concrete example in something that we do is um, in year seven when we first uh, get that that cohort of students we would look at the basics of color theory now it's really important in art to have an awareness of what they've learned in primary school because of course you know a lot of a lot of students come to us with knowledge um, but equally the national curriculum for art is a sentence um, 
so we get really, really differing levels of engagement in primary schools. So some students come to us and they're phenomenally knowledgeable and they've done lots and lots of art. And some students come to us and they they've and they've done very, very little, sadly. So it's really about making sure that we cover the basics so we get a nice level playing field for everybody, um, but activating that prior knowledge that they've gained in, in primary. So in year seven, we would look at colour theory as the basics. And then in year eight, we'd reactivate that prior knowledge and then we'd start to do things like analyze artists and their choice of color um, we'd start to do things like you know why do you what impact has that color choice had on a piece of artwork so starting to being drilled in those analysis skills and then in year nine we then reactivate all of that knowledge again and we'd start to do things like um, mix tints and shades when we're representing fabrics with acrylic paint. So one scheme that we do is we look at uh, the portrait of the Pope by Valiloquay, um, and we look at how we're gonna use our color theory knowledge and then apply that to painting and representing fabrics. So that's the sort of example of, of how we would use that really rigorous knowledge curricula, uh, knowledge rich art curriculum. Um, so a knowledge rich art curriculum for me is it's, it's rigorous, it's academic, you, we don't shy away from the hard stuff, you know, we look at Renaissance art, we, we start portraiture really early um, and, and I think typically you do tend to get some, some art teachers that shy away from the things that perhaps are difficult to achieve success with. Um, so we teach young people well, I suppose the question is with the power with powerful knowledge is if you're not going to teach the young people about these things now in school, when are they going to learn it? If you don't look at Renaissance art um, and, and sort of high masters and Leonardo da Vinci and, and really, really equipping with them with that powerful historical knowledge, when are they going to learn it? When are they going to go into the real world and look at that? And I think it's recognizing that there is core knowledge in art. There's not, it's not just about sort of skills. There is procedural knowledge, but there is also sort of structural knowledge too. And they need to know this to be successful. Something I always like to compare a knowledge rich art curriculum with is music. So music, you know, everybody would recognize that music is also a very creative subject. Um, and if you look at how you learn to play a musical instrument, let's say a piano, um, it's universally, universally acknowledged that you practice, practice, practice. And that's how you achieve mastery in playing the piano. Um, and actually there are grades in piano uh, and there are acknowledged uh, pieces of practice that you would need to do your scales and all these various different things not particularly musical myself but there are things that you would practice and you would master repeatedly and and you'd rehearse those skills until you got really really good at them um, and I believe that a knowledge rich art curriculum and core core knowledge within art is the same. Observational drawing needs to be rehearsed and practiced. It needs to be broken down into, into those skills and those uh, tasks that you would do with each observational drawing. Painting's the same. Um, I think a knowledge rich 
art curriculum also I I don't believe that people are born with talent I believe that you can work hard and I believe that with repeated practice and guided practice a specific guided practice anybody can draw and anybody can paint I, I certainly don't believe that people are born sort of geniuses at, at this and I think often when you do find these these people that are remarkable at their at their trade they are often if you look they have done thousands and thousands of hours of guided practice and that's often why they're so good um I think when you're creating uh, an art curriculum that is founded on powerful knowledge it's something that is never finished um, it's almost like a living living breathing thing you need to keep on going back to it and reflect on it and make sure that it is the best it can possibly be um, we we've been working on our knowledge curriculum for years and it changes almost every year um, but not hugely it's like a tweak you know here and there is this the right thing you know what do we want our students to know what life chances do we want to open up to them by teaching them this what conversations do we need them to be able to take part in? Um, you know, do we want them to be able to go to a, a really red brick university and, and, and study art history? We need to make sure that we're creating the conditions for them to be able to compete. Um, and I think for me, the, the, the really sort of fundamental moment when I really believed in what we were doing of a, a knowledge rich art curriculum was when I moderated for an exam board so I was an A-level art moderator and I went to lots and lots of different schools in the area as part of my role um, and I went to a very posh private school and marked their work well and moderated their work and you can imagine their, their work was absolutely outstanding it was it was phenomenal and whilst my students at the time had been sort of um coloring outlines of trainers that I'd given them in in the colors of pop art these students in this wonderful private school had had um, they'd been doing life skills drawing lessons. They'd had direct instruction on how to draw from observation. They had an artist in residence. They had specific art history lessons. They had um, instructional teaching sessions about how to use different media um, and then repeated practice of how to use this media. Um, and all of this culminated in this grand tour of Italy so they could actually see the real life masters at work. Um, and it just really hit home for me that I was like, why that should be available for everybody why are only some of our young people receiving this education in art and then others are are receiving something that is below that standard it didn't feel fair to me um and I returned back to my school absolutely incensed um but absolutely ded dedicated to the fact that my students would receive that same opportunity that same education of really high quality, powerful and rich art knowledge. Tamsin, that is like music to my ears. <laughs> I loved all of what you said there. Um, I, I think the, the thing that you're talking about, about talent, about believing that everybody can do it, I think that's why it's so important, isn't it, to, to mm. teach in this way, to allow everybody to have that opportunity to, you're not just born with it, you can get better. Um, and it's, it's something that I say all the time to pupils. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Thank you so much. Um, so if then I was going to come to an art and design classroom in your school, um, how would I see teachers teaching? How would I see young people engaging and learning within a knowledge-rich art and design curriculum? Oh, so um, 
I think a lot about my classroom environment. I think you could probably hear from my introduction, I'm really, really obsessed with culture and I'm obsessed with um, the power of good behavior um, and just you know what you can do with it. You know, if you've got that amazing environment, that really, really high engagement based on genuine mutual respect between teachers and, and students you know not not children behaving because out of fear or you know because they because they'll be punished they're behaving because that's the social norm um and and i really deeply believe in that and that definitely comes through in in the way that i teach um and teach my art subjects or practical subjects generally so if i were to think about well, I think actually it's something to, to it's really important to recognize that when we are teaching art or any practical subject, there are far more opportunities for misbehavior uh, because you've often and you and you have to you have to have you know students need to be able to get out of their seats uh, quite often and, and sort of get equipment or you know change their water, for example, if they're painting. Um, and if you have an environment where students are talking, uh, they're out of their seats, they're moving about, you have an environment that has an opportunity for, for, for bullying or unkindness. And I really believe that children should feel safe all the time in school. So, and a you know, for the best, the best teacher in the world cannot see and hear everything in a very busy, noisy art room. Um, so I think the first thing for me to sort of recognise is that behaviour is so important so that the children can feel safe, not only in, you know, in social times and everything, but in all their lessons, they should feel safe. Um, so excellent behaviour is really, really important to me. Um, I'm relentlessly calm with students and my expectations are super super high um, but I do find that students meet them it's very very rare to have poor behavior um, and I definitely leave the classroom as the expert I'm I'm very explicit in my instructions um, and my expectations and I don't leave anything to guesswork I'm, I'm not sort of ambiguous in my instructions or I certainly try not to be um, I, I, you know, I try to be very clear um, and I feel that actually when we have ambiguity, you know, please could you be quiet rather than silent, you, you sort of breed a bit of chaos, it's an opportunity for chaos, particularly in a practical subject, as I said, where they could be moving around, they could be out of their seats. Um, I unapologetically, this is quite a, perhaps a little controversial, my students work in silence, they are expected to work in silence and that is the norm. Um, and I explain why, I'm, I very much narrate my reasons why. Um, I talk about how challenging art is and that we must give all of our cognitive load to, to, to working hard and, and working on our craft and that talking would take away from that. Um, so something else that, that really builds into that sort of what the classroom looks like is I work really hard to have very efficient routines. So the students enter and exit the classroom exactly the same way, in the most efficient way possible every lesson. Um, when they come in, they have a do now activity that requires zero instructions. And it's always a very similar sort of structure that they would come in, they sit down and they get on with their five retrieval questions. And that usually has some kind of uh, sort of prior activation of, of knowledge that we're then going to retrieve, you know, and need that lesson. Um, so they really know what to expect in the lessons and I think that tends to give them a sense of calm um, and we do rehearse those routines you know if we find we're getting a bit slack and we're packing away and it's taking too long 
every second counts in that art room. We don't get as much time as maths or as English, you know, as, uh, as other subjects. So we have to make sure that every second is used for, for learning um, and not sort of being silly at the sink or anything like that. Um, my classroom is in rows facing forwards. I have a central row down the aisle in the middle and that enables handing things out and collecting things in to be very efficient and very quick. Um, but you can only do all of these efficient routines if you have buy-in from your students and they have to understand why. Why, it, why is, why is Miss Bellaby obsessing about how we hand things in? Well, it's because every second is precious and I want you to be able to have the most opportunity in this subject, you know, and if we waste five seconds every lesson, that soon adds up to, you know, a good couple of minutes each, each term, you know, and, and all those kinds of conversations happen. Um, I'm really big as well, not only on getting students buy-in and, and sort of believing in what we're doing, in also their sort of attitude towards art. So I'm incredibly enthusiastic about my subject. Um, I talk to them about how academically rigorous our curriculum is and that they're so lucky that they get to do this stuff and that they get to you know engage with really challenging uh, difficult artwork and that we're not giving them the easy soft stuff you know we talk about how smart they are how accomplished they are and they know they love it they love feeling like they're the sort of top of the pyramid you know they recognize that as a, as a department, we get really good results and we talk about that. You know, you're in a department that's going to get you amazing results. We know what we're doing. You know, you've got to listen to us. And it's that kind of team mentality that, you know, we all have a collective responsibility to work really hard. We have a collective responsibility to be silent while we're working so that everybody can concentrate. Um, something else we've brought in that sort of lifts that scholarly attitude that we have in the art room is my, uh, we have a head of music and she's so amazing. She, she curates this little um, PowerPoint for me every week and it has classical music that's excellent for concentration that she believes will lift their uh, cultural capital and their sort of scholarly concentration. So a few weeks ago we had Debussy, we had Beethoven um, and we have this playing whilst we're working hard and painting. So there's that kind of environment as well of lifting their cultural capital. She does a little mini PowerPoint for us at the beginning of each week and we just have a quick look of like, okay, this is Beethoven and this is when this was composed. So, we, you know, we do that too. So a bit of cross-curricular, um, a cross-curricular work. Um, in terms of how we teach vocabulary as well, we really believe in our scholars being able to talk the talk. We want our scholars to be able to confidently talk about art and I mean of course it is part of the GCSE specifications that they're able to analyze but I think it's more important than that it's more about having a shared language I think it saves time when we're giving feedback it, it gives more clarity when they deeply understand you know what tone is and you know what form is so that we're able to communicate fully so we use knowledge organizers um, for, for, for vocabulary but but we also teach it explicitly and we also talk about sort of upgrading our vocabulary all the time. So it's something we do when we speak in full sentences for our answers and we make sure that we're using that really, really smart language. Um, so it's quite funny, actually, we've really we've really changed the, the sort of reputation of art within our school. Um, certainly when I joined it, it, it was 
how do I say this without it, it was it was a subject that wasn't taken taken very seriously and it was it was for students that perhaps sort of felt like they, they weren't very academic so they oh I'll take art and see how it goes but actually now we're one of the largest option choices and the type of student that we are attracting now is different you know we've got lots of students that are taking triple science and they take art as well you know it's no longer seen as this sort of lesser subject it's seen as an academically rigorous uh, subject so if you were to look at the teacher within the classroom sort of how they teach um, teachers teach from the front uh, we have rows we use our visualizers every lesson. I, I literally wouldn't be able to teach art without my, without my visualizer. Um, and it removes the guesswork. We take away the guesswork from the students. So through direct instruction, we deliberately plan opportunities for success. So the students are never left wondering how to do something like, how do I draw this? What do I do? Everything is modeled. It's very much sort of me, we, you. And we move through that system all the time. They know they're going to be supported. They're never working for huge amounts of time unsupported. Um, I use a timer a lot um, and, and they'll know, okay, right, I've got this specific part of the drawing to structure and I've got four minutes, you know? So it's all the time. They're very, very tightly um, constrained is the wrong word, but they're very tightly monitored about how they're getting on. So they're never left sort of staring at a, a blank page thinking, what on earth am I meant to be doing? They will have just watched what I've done. And then we rejoin back together um, and sort of check on work. Something else we do is we, um, I correct work under the visualizer. It's very normal to make mistakes in, in the art room. We always laugh and say, you know, that there, there's a rubber on the end of your pencil for a reason. You know, you make mistakes and that's totally fine. That's part of learning. Um, so when we are uh, uh, modeling, we constantly question as well. So I, I probably should count how many questions I ask in, <laughs> in, in a lesson. Um, I, don't, I, I would love to, I don't know, lots. I ask lots and lots of questions. I would say most students have spoken to you twice in a lesson. Um, and I use questions to check for understanding. I use questions to check that they're engaged. Um, and I use them as well just for general sort of comprehension. And what I tend to do as well is if, you know, if I get a good answer, then I reward that, that question with a harder question. And they know, again, that's not me saying you've got that wrong. It's like, well done, you know, tell me more. And, and we, we really delve deeply using questioning. Um, so to summarize my classroom, our department and how it looks, you know, we have impeccable behavior. We have very slick rehearsed routines. We have silent working, perhaps with a nice soundtrack of Beethoven. <laughs> um, ha we have a, a really deep, deeply embedded environment of celebrating scholarly behavior and sort of seeing art as an, an academic endeavor. Um, and none, none of this is, is possible without impeccable behavior. I can't, get, I can't sort of stress that enough. That's the most important part. No, it certainly is, and it resonates with, with many of my previous guests talking about this high standard of behaviour. And when you've got that, then you can teach them anything. And it goes back to what you said earlier on. I, I, I want to come back to this. You said, if you don't talk about your knowledge-rich and academic, rigorous art curriculum, because I know exactly what you're talking about when you're kind of colouring in trainers and, and, and so on and, and pop-up colours. But love what you said. If, if you don't teach them now, when are they going to learn it? And, and I think that really kind of comes across in what you were saying there with the children, Rose. And, and even when you were kind of hesitant to talk about silence, you kind of 
as you went in, in further into that, your classroom perhaps only silent for short bursts when they're working, but it's highly interactive in terms of your questioning, your work under the visualizer. And uh, <laughs> I can just imagine walking into the room and, and the young people enjoying a bit of Beethoven or Tchaikovsky as they as they work as they work away. I just just wonderful to hear and you probably they, they love it they they, they have favorites they start to ask like oh miss, we really liked Debussy can we have Debussy on again and you know these are students that are coming from really difficult you know mm -hmm. difficult 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 demographics and and they are they're they're really sort of getting into their classical music and and they find that it helps them to concentrate definitely and it's that enriching cultural capital that, that they don't get at home and it's school's role to to give them that. So you've probably yeah. already answered our next question in terms of your, your explanations and, and the constant question, the comprehension questions, the checking for understanding. I like what you said also about rewarding good answers, but a harder answer to really yes. dig into what they know. Can I, can I ask, how do you, you support and scaffold tasks so that all learners achieve in art and design? I can probably, you're quite right, can probably be quite brief with this answer, to be honest, because I think I probably have answered that. Um, but yeah, I, I use, and most of my techniques come from TLAC. Um, so Teach Like a Champion is just the Bible, isn't it? You know, the, it's, if you're following, if you're following TLAC, it's, it's, you are going to be supporting all learners. Um, so yeah, yeah using um, direct instruction, using the visualizer, there's no guesswork. They're never left with a blank page and a pencil in the hand thinking, I've got no idea what I'm supposed to do. Um, when I when I am modeling using the visualizer, I do, I do it in stages, as I said, um, and, and it's short bursts of work. Using those questioning, uh, that questioning to check for comprehension and engagement, but I also use sort of metacognitive uh, narration. So I'm all the time narrating what I'm thinking um, and narrating the decisions or the questions that I'm asking myself. Um, so if I'm drawing from observation, I might say, oh, you know, what, do, do I need to use this method or this? Why am I going to make my pencil quite light here? And that would be a question. Oh, it's miss. You might need to rub that out. It's a guideline. Absolutely. You know, so it's a conversation all the time about what I'm thinking whilst I'm drawing. And I believe that over time that builds their confidence to question when it does go wrong um, and to recognize that sometimes in, in art things do go wrong um, and, to, and to sort of you know really question that yourself and say right okay what do I need to do what did Miss say and they and they sort of use that metacognitive cognitive sort of questioning all the time to um to, to bring them back onto track um, I think just having a look and just thinking, you know, have I have I covered everything that I do? Yeah, they're, they're never working unsupported uh, for large chunks of time. And I think that really supports. Something else that I do using a TLAC method is, um, you know, I'm not sure what it's called in the book, but they you, you do the tour of a room um, and you're sort of touring your classroom. And I deliberately use my seating plan to seat students who I know won't find art as easy. Um, you know, and I know that just from relationships and sort of viewing their work. Um, and I change my seating plans quite frequently. And I will position students that I want to see at the beginning of my sort of tour of the classroom, but I will also finish there. So they'll see me twice. And I will see them straight away so that they've not got time to sort of flounder. They're immediately like, do you know what you're doing? You know, and, and this is what you're going to do. And just giving them that reassurance and that support to get started. Um, and when I tour the room as well, I, I verbally narrate what I'm looking for. So I will say to students, um, for example, 
uh, I'm now going to move around the room and I'm looking to check your ellipses. I'm looking for whether your ellipses are correct. And this is my first tour. And then I might do another tour of the room and say, OK, now I'm going to start to look for your guidelines and, and I'll tell them what I'm looking for. And I find that that gives them confidence in what they're doing, because they know that if I've moved past and I've looked at their work, I'm, you know, I exaggerate how I'm looking at their work um, they know Mrs. Happy with what I've done because she's not stopped and she's not given me any feedback. Um, obviously sort of positive feedback, but I'm not stopping and saying, okay, let's work on this. Now, what I do when I'm doing these tours of the room is I'm looking for common misconceptions. Um, and, and of course, we, you know, all teachers in their subjects can predict them, can't they? And the idea is, um, I think Barry Smith said it quite recently on your podcast, actually, you sort of run towards those, those common misconceptions um, and you pick them out. You're looking for them because if one student's making them, chances are there might be another somewhere else, you know, sort of perhaps embedding those misconceptions. So what I do then is I will choose a student and I, I don't always choose the, the most well-behaved or the, you know, the, the student that's just amazing. I will choose, try to choose somebody different all the time and I'll put their work under the visualizer and we correct it as a class. Um, and we learn from each other's mistakes and we talk about that very openly really really important that it's okay to make mistakes we don't want artists that are frightened of putting pen to paper in case it goes wrong um, and we correct as a class and then I ask everybody to sort of you know look at your work now does that relate you know is there something that you could up you know upgrade on your work um, and the last thing moving into sort of key stage four when um, I'm, I, I believe what I'm going to say is going to be a bit controversial to art teachers, so ready for the gasp. Um, when I teach coursework and, and we're working on our year 10 and 11 coursework, I hang on to the students for as long as possible. I don't give them very much freedom until about year 11. They do their coursework projects together. As a, as a group and then that allows us to stay together and to be looking at the same artists to be looking at the same observation pieces and it allows us to stay together in that group where we are supported and we're experiencing success and I, I don't tend to to let them go until a little bit later into year 11 so possibly a controversial comment there <laughs> Yeah, I think I know what you mean there, Tamsin. <laughs> um, but I think that's so important, isn't it? Because it kind of comes back to the the success and letting them feel that success and feel that accomplishment. And if you let them go too early, um, then they don't always experience that success. And I, I like what you said about removing the guesswork. You know, you are the expert in the class and you're the one that's imparting that knowledge to them. So, um, yeah, it's so important for you to be able to, to give them that knowledge so that they can then feel the success and feel the accomplishment of something that they've done and that doesn't always happen when they're just left on their own I think to to do that. I think sometimes in art you can have that that, that choice of doing whatever you want is overwhelming and I think yeah, it can definitely. be the the paradox of choice is just, you know, I've seen so many students that you think, oh, they're amazing. You know, year seven to nine, they're just absolutely flying. You get them into year 10, you you know, you allow them this this a whole world of choice and they just crumble you know it, it doesn't always happen but sometimes it happens and I just think if there's a way of avoiding that happening and, and then of course by their crumble they lose their their confidence so I do try to hang on to them as long as possible yep 
Thank you. Um, so I um, kind of what we've touched on there, like, are there any other benefits for young people then of teaching art and design or I suppose any other practical subject in this way by focusing on, on knowledge rich um, curriculum? I think it's sort of pulling those threads together of what, of what we've talked about. So, you know, the big question is, you know, if, if we don't teach them this now when they're in school, when will they learn this? When will they learn about the great masters and, and um, you know, standing on those shoulders of those of, of the greats? You know, we we know about this art, beautiful things that humans have created to sort of celebrate and reflect society. And if we don't show them and celebrate what's been created, I sort of wonder whether whether they'd come across it. And I don't want that to be a gamble. I want that to be a dead cert for, for every child. I want them to have seen what human beings can create, you know? Um, so it's really important to me that, that they, are, they aren't left to just discover it on their own. Um, and I think if they're in, in a classroom and they're sort of discovering, um, I often think that, is that right that, that I'm there? You know, what am I bringing to the, what am I bringing for them? How am I lifting their experience if they are sort of discovering it for themselves? And, and also I feel like it's, it's, it can be a waste of time. Um, I certainly remember teaching in my training year. Um, I can certainly remember a lesson I remember really, really well. I spent ages planning this lesson. Um, and essentially I gave a class new media that they have never, they'd never come across uh, before. And I allowed them to discover how to use it. And I watched a class completely flounder and find it incredibly difficult, destroy their confidence in, oh, you know, by the end of the lesson, oh, I can't draw, I can't do art, I'm terrible, you know, that kind of narrative, those kinds of feelings. And I stood back knowing full well how to use the, the media, hadn't told them, allowed them to discover and sort of find their creativity with this media. Um, and then at the end, I did this great big sort of plenary reveal where I taught them how to use it. Um, and I got I got graded outstanding and I remember feeling really sort of fraudulent and, and a bit naughty that I was like I know how to use it but I'm not going to tell you um, and I, I just I feel like it's it's sort of almost morally wrong you know we, we should be we should be teaching them if, if we if we think about sort of uh, different subjects let's say science um, you know we don't bring students into a science classroom and ask them to discover gravity you know we we tell them that Sir Isaac Newton discovered gravity and, and we teach them about it we and then our discoveries and our knowledge is then pinned onto this great powerful knowledge about how gravity was discovered and we stand on their shoulders you know we become taller because we know this great knowledge um, and I think it it feels really wrong to me to, to not to treat art students differently and to not tell them how to do things and to show them um, I think for me there is a, a great debate that, that seems to rage on Twitter every now and again it rears its head and there's this debate that if you teach knowledge somehow you're going to sort of get rid of creativity or you're going to, to, to dilute creativity. But for me, having knowledge is about art is teaching students to successfully operate within you know the rules the rules of art um, and teaching them to, to operate within there within those rules gives confidence. And then as they become, uh, more accomplished, more confident, um, you know, mastering certain elements of media, we can then look at what rules can be broken. 
and break them successfully. And to me, that's what creativity is, knowing what rules you can break create uh, successfully. And if we think about, you know, Picasso, for example, he was an, an amazingly accomplished uh, portraiture, portraiture painter and, and, it, and his work is absolutely beautiful. And he, he didn't start painting um, Cubas in, in the Cubist style because he couldn't paint. He absolutely could paint. He was breaking those rules because he understood the rules really, really deeply. And I think that's where this sort of debate is coming from. This, you know, if you, ha if you teach knowledge, you're going to sort of abolish this creativity. And I, I really strongly disagree. I don't think you can create unless you know deeply about a subject. Um, so I think also, you know, another benefit of teaching uh, practical subjects in this way is, of course, it's, you know, it's, it's safer um, and you have a higher, higher sort of um, guarantee of, of behaviour and safety. And there's lots of dangerous things in practical subjects um, and you need to have really, really excellent behaviour. Um, and I think it's the best use of use of time. It's the best use of time if you've got students that are valuing every possible second, who are really well behaved, who who do their homework, who value the subject, um, who try really really hard and have deep confidence in their ability. Why would we not want to teach a subject like that? Totally, totally agree in terms of our best use of time because I, I can think I did some work a, a couple of years ago and found that a, a child spends sixteen percent of their childhood in school. So it's such a short wow. amount, of time, amount of time that we have them. And as you said there with your little anecdote about your, your lesson observation, why leave it to the end to tell them stuff? You know, just tell them now and then check for understanding and use that knowledge to, to manipulate it and debate it. And once they've built up that bank of, of schematic knowledge, their procedural knowledge, of declarative knowledge, then they can use that, as you said, to, to break the rules. And I think in them... Um, and one of the talk you mentioned, Daisy Christodoulou, I think she talks about Shakespeare and how he followed the rules. And then with all his mass knowledge on of English and grammar at the time, he was then able to break the rules. And now he's the most celebrated, kind of one of the most celebrated or wealth, most well-known authors. And the same what you said about Picasso. You know, it's people that, that know these people, but they weren't able to break that rules until they were they were later on. And the same if we go back to music and, and Mozart, Mozart, you know, his best pieces were when he was in his 20s, but when you consider he was writing pieces from when he was five, six years old, you know, the amount of time that he'd put in, the practice, the deliberate practice is there. So we've had a wonderful exploration of, of your classroom and, and, and I really want to to improve my own uh, drawing art skills in your classroom <laughs> while listening to some some uh, some Beethoven and, um, and working away. If there's kind of art teachers listening to you or if, if Fiona wants to pick your brain some more um, and keen to develop an approach like that, like um, what you have in your classroom, um, what advice would you would you give them so that they can, they can implement a, a knowledge-rich direct instruction approach like you have in yours? Okay, so I think the first thing, I'd almost break this down into two sort of elements. So there's obviously the art curriculum, which is a huge beast. Um, but it's also about the sort of behaviour expectations and the routines within the room. So I'd say the first couple of things I'd say is um, have a read of The Power of Culture by Michaela. Um, there's a chapter right at the end, which is dedicated to art and design. That was really powerful, reading that for me. Um, I definitely read Rosenshine's Direct Instruction. I think it's the In Action series. Um, and that's, that, again, that's so relevant to art. You read it. And even some of the examples that are used are, are about art. Um, there's 
some uh, some pieces that I've recorded on YouTube that you could look at that talks about sort of uh, what comes first about knowledge or creativity. It's me sort of muddling my way through how I feel about knowledge and creativity. Um, but looking at how you'd build your curriculum, um, this this is a it, it's a huge it's a huge undertaking, um, and I think it's one of those things that you need to do uh, slowly. And perhaps what you need to do is is trial uh, perhaps a year group or uh, perhaps just one classroom or one teacher, and and just really sort of make sure that you've got everybody on the same page in your department. We were really lucky. It was myself and Sophie Spencer. She was the head of department um, and we worked together, just the two of us. And we were so lucky because we were so aligned. So I think we didn't have those battles um, of, of trying to convince. What we did do though, was we really deeply questioned each other and we questioned the curriculum relentlessly. So we would always be saying, you know, why are we, why are we going to teach the students this? what will they learn from this? How will this connect uh, to, the, to the information and the knowledge that we will be looking at in the future? What do we want the students to be able to sort of access when, when they finish with us? So, you know, really deep questioning of your curriculum and what you're going to teach. And everybody's curriculum is different. It's not gonna be something you can just lift off the shelf. Um, I would, I'll happily share any sort of art curriculum um, that, we, that we've got, but I genuinely believe that it needs to be tailor-made for your context and for what you believe in. Um, and it's vast, isn't it? Absolutely vast. You know, you, the world is your oyster. You can teach them anything about art that you believe is powerful knowledge. Um, I think it's important to, to look at the sort of equity of your of your curriculum so you know is your curriculum going to be fair to all learners regardless of their starting point so making sure that you are explicitly teaching and and not assuming cultural capital um, knowing as well that your curriculum is never finished it's a living and breathing beast uh, that, that needs sort of constant nurture and it needs feeding um so i don't think it's i don't think it's ever done and i think you need to be quite quite um, reflective and you need to be realistic about cutting things if they didn't quite go the way that you planned i know um in one of our sort of first years of the curriculum we had uh, the way we taught perspective to year eight just didn't quite flow and we found that when we got to year nine they hadn't quite embedded the knowledge that we needed so we completely uh, changed the way that we taught it and we knew that we wanted them to understand perspective but we changed you know we, we looked and we just said it's not worked it's not worked absolutely back to the drawing board you know um i think it's really hard to embed a knowledge rich curriculum if you haven't got your senior leadership team on board so if they are you know for me that's that's going to be a limit of where this is going to become a really difficult challenge within your department if, if your senior leadership team are, are not believing in in what you want to teach then that's that's going to be very difficult um you know we were really lucky we were in a, a knowledge rich school that were absolutely rowing in the right direction um but yeah i think the curriculum you, you need to be looking at that as a whole um and working out what that deep powerful knowledge is that you want your students to have when they leave you so it's almost working backwards you know what do you want them to know what does a an accomplished artist that's in that's gone through their art education in school with you what do they know what are they good at what are they what you know what do they look you know how, how do they talk about your subject how do you know they're accomplished and i think you identify those and then you work backwards about how you are going to teach that 
That's fantastic, Tams, and um, I love what you're saying there about constantly questioning your curriculum and why you're doing things as well, and I think that's so important, isn't it? Um, I think sometimes in my experience, I've, I've found that as art teachers, we maybe focus on, you know, the activity that they're doing or the, the outcome, you know, or, or keeping them busy by doing something <laughs> that gives them something nice to put up on the wall, um, and I think it really helps to think about, kind of break that down, but like, why are we doing this? What is it that we want them to get better at what what do we need them to know in order to to move on with this and improve um, so I really liked what you said about that I, I, I totally agree and I think it's so important as well about having that alignment isn't it and making sure that, that everybody understands why um, we're doing it I think it's a it's a battle that perhaps other departments may have and it's it's not to be you know it's 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 it's, it's going to be a challenge isn't it if you've got a department that are divided um and I recognize that Sophie and I were just so lucky we we just completely you know we we just it just made sense for us so we were really rowing in the same direction right from the start and and that was a battle that we didn't have we we were very united it was very much a team effort um and I and I you know it's not it's not to be it's not to be overlooked that that would be a big challenge if you have a department that perhaps are not quite on board with it um and and you've, you've got to convince you've got to work hard and you know introduce the research and and nudge people to 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 really see the benefits I mean it's hugely impacted our results bringing in a knowledge-rich art curriculum we were well we were the worst performing department um, and we were then by, by the end of three years we were the top performing department alongside science we, we absolutely our results went through the roof and I can and I can imagine why that calm studious classroom with the expert leading the leading the learning and the students feeling success every step of the way I think we will think back to the when you took us through the classroom and, and you're talking about modeling and small steps and checking them I like what you said when you were circulating you're narrating what you're looking for you know I'm going to come around I'm going to look for your guide that you've all got guidelines I think you said and um, I think that's, that's so valuable for the for the young people and, and knowing when you're and you walk past me and you have a have a look and then you, you go on to someone else like oh, I'm nailing it I'm absolutely nailing it and that success mm -hmm. and, and motivation to achieve it and that knowledge and builds another knowledge and builds another knowledge and over time it's, they're just going to feel accomplished in your curriculum so thank you and that brings us to the end of the main interview section and we're going to dive into my quick fire round which are my, my three um, questions that I ask every guest and, and I love the insights that we get from this but before we, we go into that, could I ask you to share um, where listeners can find out a little bit more about you, perhaps a, a blog or you mentioned a YouTube channel and also where they can get in contact with you via social media? Absolutely. So one of the many benefits of having such an unusual name that I have to spell for everybody is that I'm on Twitter as at Tamsin Bellaby. Um, and I'm also on YouTube as Tamsin Bellaby and, and I've got a channel on there. So yeah, you can find me on, uh, on Twitter. Um, I'm relatively active on there. Um, and yeah, happy to, happy to have a chat by DM. Um, and please, yeah, share, share some blogs with me as well. I'm always, always wanting to learn, always wanting to be taught something new. 
Brilliant. And please, any art teachers that are listening to the or any practical subject teachers that are listening, please do get in touch and, and speak with Tamden. I've, I've scribbled down so many notes um, from what you said because it, it just echoes so much with me and also kind of echoes with the discussions I've had in, in previous episodes with likes of Louis Everett and, and Barry Smith and Protest Right Tudor. There was a lot, there's a lot of commonalities there. So thank you so much for exploring us and allow us, allowing us into your, your classroom today. Um, so we're going to go on to the quick fire round. How we're going to do this is, is Funa, I'd like you to ask uh, questions one and three, and I'll ask number two. The quick fire round, I'd like short, sharp responses, your immediate, what you think, shoot from the hip, and we'll see what we, see where we go from there. So Funa, I'll do my best. <laughs> okay, um, Tams, and then what makes great teaching for you? Okay, impeccable behaviour. Uh, simple, rehearsed and repeated routines, um, explicit and consistent learning behaviours, and well-planned and clear explanations. Fantastic. Yeah. Right, a beautiful, <laughs> short articulation of what we explored earlier on. So, second question is, what one thing would you prioritise to bring about great teaching in every classroom? Oh, I'm going to cheat and have two things. I'm going to have impeccable behaviour, obviously, coupled with direct instruction. Fabulous. Yeah, touches on lots of what we've talked about. Um, and last quick fire question, if you could change one thing in education, what would that be? I would remove private exam boards. I feel that schools are, are, are funded by the government and then they pay huge amounts of money to private exam boards and that money ends up in sort of private pockets. Um, I would advocate some kind of sort of centralised government exam board um, and then at least if we are paying money back to the exam board that, that's run by the government perhaps that money could be somehow cycled back into education. It just somehow feels wrong this privatisation of, of exam boards. That's what I would change. It's, it's such an interesting uh, topic to discuss when you, because uh, in Scotland we have a centralised exam board and it's proven to be quite controversial this year. Really? This year. So it's a, a very interesting, interesting topic. Um, ah, today's I'd part. like to know some more about that. That sounds really interesting because in my sort of rose tinted idealised world, I thought that would be working work fabulously, but maybe it doesn't. <laughs> okay, we can unpick that once once we're finished recording. But thank you so much. So that brings us to the to the end, Damsley. I'd like to thank you so so much for giving up your time on a Sunday during your holidays. To, Thank to, you speak so much. With, to speak with us and, and to allow us into your thinking around a, a knowledge-rich art and design curriculum. And I'd also like to thank Fiona for being the first co-host of Becoming Educated. I couldn't think of anyone better to join me on the podcast. So thank you so much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.